This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and on tonight's show, we're doing a spotlight on disability and screen culture. Uh, This is something that I am personally and professionally very passionate about, and I'm delighted to be joined tonight by two other academics who are equally committed to bringing disabled bodies both on screen and behind the camera to the forefront of public discussion and scholarly discourse. Making her primal screen debut, I'd like to welcome lecturer in screenwriting at the University of Melbourne and author of a recent report titled Disability and Screenwork in Australia, Dr Rada Omira. Thanks, Flick. Um, and a voice Triple R listeners will be very familiar with. It is one of the hosts of Superfluity, who is an autistic screenwriting researcher currently completing a PhD in screenwriting at RM. My tea. It's Clem Basto. Hello. Hey, <laughs> and I just want to say I'm not licking the microphone. It's my dog, Millie. If you hear any <laughs> mouth noises, it's not us. Yeah, we are having our first uh, dog, dog debut. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how she goes. So on tonight's show, we're going to dig into some of the findings of the Disability and Screen Work in Australia report, plus talk about some of the research we've each done at the intersection of disability and screen culture And talk more generally about the significance of disabled representation both on screen and behind the camera. Um, And maybe even uh, throw in some hot recommendations of films and TV shows to check out. So before we get into the findings of the report and a deeper discussion about disability and screen industries, I think it's important to first introduce our listeners to our individual research projects and how disability does figure in our work, Um, because I think we're each coming at it from quite different angles, um, which is really interesting and I think a really good foundation for tonight's discussion. Rada, let's start with you. You are, of course, the lead researcher for the report, but tell us a bit more about your own research work. Uh, So the report came about because uh, I was approached by a production company in Melbourne called A2K Media um, and their um, entire practice um, and reason for being is really focused on disability. They're all about disability pride and making that happen every day in the screen industry. Um, So they're looking at doing some training around disability Um, inclusivity, accessibility in the screen industry and they wanted their training to be informed by what's actually currently happening in industry Um, and there just hasn't been any research specific to Australia previously on this topic. Is that right? Wow. Um, So there are There are a few things we know from other research, which is very useful. For example, um, we got a sense um, of the prevalence of disabled people working in the screen industry from the um, Screen uh, Diversity Inclusion Network, um, did a report last year um, where they found that about 6% of people working in the screen industry in the last few years um, are people with disability and um, that compares to about 18% of the population. So that confirmed what we had long suspected, that that, uh, the prevalence of 
um, disabled people working in the screen industry is dramatically lower than in the community. Mm. Um, but we didn't have any data on um, what's it like, what's the experience like to work as a disabled person in the industry um, and what are the attitudes of people, uh, of non-disabled people um, mm. towards people with disability. Um, and those are really important things to get a sense of that we really focused on with the survey. We did a survey of, uh, we got over 500 responses um, and we did 10 in-depth interviews. Um, and the what came back through the surveys and the interviews was very consistent. So it, it was that, that helped us get a really good picture of what's going on in the screen industry currently in Australia um, and how disabled people are working and what the conditions are like. Um, so um, I have a lifelong hearing impairment. Um, so I, um, I grew up um, with that and um, I do I have found it particularly difficult during COVID mm. um, because uh, a lot of online meetings, I need captioned, stuff like that. Um, and I find it very difficult to understand people wearing masks. Mm. Um, so um, that's something that I've had my whole life, but your experience of it does change even in different scenarios um, because the difficulties are often presented by the world around you more so than your actual ears. Mm. It's yeah. interesting how the pandemic has really played in with disability because for some people... Um, I know I work in libraries and making things online. Um, we had lots of disabled patrons who were suddenly like, thank mm. you. Yes. <laughs> I can attend. I yes. can attend these. Um, so it's, it's, it affects people um, depending on the disability in really different ways, but it's at least brought it into the discussion, which I think is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clem. Yes. Um, as I said before, most people probably know you already and are wondering what you're doing on Primal. But, but not with this hat on. <laughs> no. Um, you are usually on the airwaves every Tuesday night, 8pm till 10. Um, but you're also in the midst of completing your PhD in screenwriting at RMIT. I've heard your work described as an exploration of autism screenwriting and action films. That's the that's the elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'm sold. Yeah, I guess if Rada's research project is macro, mine is very micro. So mm. I'm it's autoethnographic. I'm looking at my own experience as a screenwriter uh, and as an autistic screenwriter, uh, and that's been really it's been really interesting. It's been I think most people who do autoethnographic research, which for those who don't know is is essentially looking at your own experience would would know it's kind of like writing a diary you know it has been quite difficult at times to look at what I can now see to be you know aspects of autistic experience creeping into my screenwriting practice and how that kind of meshes or doesn't mesh with expectations in the industry I'm sort of dancing around some of my findings because of course I don't want to reveal them till I hand it in but um yeah that's been that's been quite bittersweet but I think mm. I've I think I've come out I mean I don't want to say the other side because I haven't finished yet but I'm in I'm in head down bum up end of end of journey phase um I think I've come to a place where I feel actually much more empowered so it's been a, it's been you know I hate the journey term but it has <laughs> been a real journey this mm. PhD and again doing it through COVID has been a real ride um and like Rada said a lot of that has been uh my experience of industrial uh screenwriting experiences going online you know workshops in zoom writers rooms in zoom like that's been quite an eye-opener as well mm. so 
yeah, it's it's hopefully I think like any PhD, you know, it's sort of your your audition to the academy. So <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of opportunities for future research, which is good. Oh, absolutely. I think that was the the thing that I took away from from my PhD was wow, we have so much work left to do. Yeah. Um, I love that you touched upon some of the emotional labour that goes into working in uh, as an academic in disability research when you yourself are disabled. I yeah. think that, that <laughs> it, it really is, isn't it? It's that thing where you're surprised. I don't know. I was really surprised sometimes by what I was affected by. Mm. And, um, you know, doing that elevator pitch, sometimes when it is personal, it's actually really hard to <laughs> say. You get a bit, I don't know, I always got a bit worked up. Um, and, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to navigate. I think that's been why it's been difficult to narrow mm. down because, mm. in a way, you're sort of saying, here's my, you know, life on a platter. Yeah. <laughs> please, please, Mark. <laughs> yeah, waiting for Examiner 2's comments. Um, yeah, I, I, that's really fascinating. And you've written a lot about, um, your autism diagnosis, which came a lot later in life. You were yes, 36? 36. Yeah. Um, and so that has been part of it too because obviously that came midway through what I would call my screenwriting career. So I have I have had, um, you know, screen development I've, I've written for TV. Uh, and so about halfway through that experience was when I was diagnosed and it actually came about because of screenwriting. This isn't something that's a big reveal from my PhD. It was in the book. I was um, working on a screenplay, was getting consistent feedback around character and emotion that, that I wasn't getting about other things um, and it became clear that something was, you know, at play and as it became obvious that that character was autistic, um, I was reading about that going, hmm, this feels, this feels very, you know, relatable. Uh, so I kind of wrote my way to a diagnosis through screenwriting. <laughs> so that's, that's also part of the research. Yeah, and the book, in case you're um, wondering, is... Uh, Late Bloomer, How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life. Um, Highly recommend reading that. I also, I feel like my PhD, so my PhD was all about uh, cinema as a disabled body. Um, It is a very wanky (laughs) PhD. I'm aware of that. (laughs) I'm owning it. (laughs) That's high degree research, baby. (laughs) Um, It didn't, it initially wasn't about disability at all, um, which is interesting uh, because it became, once I did sort of, Real, once all the pieces mm. fell into place, I was like, oh, it's been there all along. But it was initially about discomfort in film and not, um, as someone once said, the, the cinema seats, no, um, <laughs> very much in the sense of taking someone out of their comfort zone through the um, technical base of cinema. So thinking about sounds that were too loud, mm. um, you know, visuals that were creating an almost um, seizure-like start and stop. And... I was really interested in disruptive cinematic form for, for so many years and I, I felt there was something more there and it wasn't until I really needed – I was doing my PhD part-time and working alongside at many jobs and I had to motivate myself to keep going and I, I had to make it personal and I thought, why do I care about mm. disruptive cinematic form? And I thought – I was thinking about film as a body and I thought this body – I've you know, searched for a body like mine. I have a physical disability and – it was really thrilling to say, actually, cinema itself, it gets presented as this continuous whole, mm. but it is, in fact, um, all these separate elements that can that kind of work together, but there, there's also this, um, this kind of presentation of wholeness that isn't actually there. Um, but I, I loved that the disruptive body was at the core of cinema. And it wasn't to say that I'm reading cinema as disabled. I saw it as it actually is. It's not a like mm. one version of it. I think that at its core, but we kind of um, don't allow for that. And I found that 
I was teaching at Melbourne Uni in cinema and it's interesting, we have all these weeks on, on race and gender and sexuality and I was like, where is disability? Yeah. And, so, and some, you know, some courses did have a week on it but there's not units on disability and this is true across all Australian universities. Mm. Um, I have looked through a lot of curriculum to try find it and there needs to be a whole course on this and, you know, like you were saying, Rada, including non-disabled and disabled participants for the report is really important because there is a line of argument that we are all just, um, you know, you're either disabled or temporarily able. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's very true. And so I, yeah, I just, I, I really, it was a difficult thing to finish a PhD as I'm sure everyone in the room is aware of. Uh, but there is something really powerful about kind of working out your own relationship to disability uh, and and doing that through theory, which is, um, yeah, like I said, perhaps one of the wankier things I've ever done in my life. But I'm so glad that we've got an opportunity to talk about disability on film. We're all passionate film nerds, all passionate about disability politics. And so I think this is going to be a really great episode. Earlier, I mentioned a recent report conducted in partnership with the Melbourne Disability Institute and A2K Media about the experience of disabled people in our screen industry. The report found that disabled people face prejudice and systemic discrimination, uh, including lower pay, uh, greater casualisation, plus uh, stigma and stereotyping. Rada, you were the chief investigator for this report, which is titled Disability and Screenwork in Australia. Uh, Dr Laura Dunstan, Phoebe Nielsen, uh, Anna Dubinsky and Catherine Ryan were also involved with collating this important research. Before we get into the findings, can you tell us a bit more about the scope of the research? You mentioned before that you interviewed both disabled and non-disabled survey participants. Tell us a bit about the, the thinking behind that. The aim was to find out partly what's the experience of disabled people in the screen industry. What are do they experience difficulties? What kinds of difficulties matter to them? And another really big part was what are the attitudes of non-disabled people in the screen industry? Um, because that's what shapes the experiences of disabled people. Mm. Um, so um, we wanted to find out what are they thinking, what, what do they know about disability? Mm. Um, and one of, the, one of the key things came up was... Um, non-disabled people did quite consistently say, we would like to know more, mm. um, but uh, they often feel unequipped with where to start with that. There is some willingness to change, which I think is one of the, the good findings of the mm. report. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned before that um, this is kind of really a, uh, a pioneering report of sorts that there, the data hasn't really been collected before, but you did mention that there had been some work. How did these findings kind of correspond with those earlier investigations? Uh, well, one of the um, one of the pieces of research that has been done by Screen Australia, and they're doing an update this year, is the Seeing Ourselves report, which really focuses on um, people from a whole range of um, different marginalised groups in and how they're represented on screen. Mm. Um, so that is one of the good pieces of research that's already out there and is being updated. Um, but there was really no research on what's what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people in Australia working in the screen industry um, and what's their experience? What, mm. what are they doing? Um, how does that relate to what's on screen? That's so valuable as well, isn't it? Because so often we focus on screen representation, which is important, and mm. the whole thing of you need to be able to see yourself on screen. 
but it's also the people behind scenes that are making those decisions or, or screenwriting like you, you both focus in on where what kind of stories are being told and who is responsible for those stories. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that, that one of the issues with representation is often who's responsible for the mm. representation. So it, things are getting better, um, mm. you know, and you, you're seeing people with lived experience cast in roles of, of disabled characters, but is there a disabled person in the writing writer's room? You know, ha- has there been a consulting process done? Like that's the next frontier, I think, in a lot of ways. And mm. that speaks to what Rada um, was doing with this report, which is looking at what's happening behind the scenes. That it's great to have the characters, but, yeah. you know, how are they being created? Exactly. And, uh, I mean, there's that, um, that fantastic slogan of nothing... Um, about us without us is that yep. have I got that right yeah <laughs> <laughs> I need more coffee um, Rada as you said before the, uh, you know that this report is based on in-depth interviews um, in this national survey of more than 500 people both disabled and on non-disabled what are some of the really specific ways that participants reported this prejudice uh, or systemic um, discrimination surfacing in their experiences Uh, So we found um, that there were a lot of really concrete um, uh, indicators of discrimination in terms of working conditions. Mm. Um, So quite consistently, um, disabled people working in the screen industry are paid less. Mm. They're much more likely to be working casually, much more likely to be working unpaid. Wow. um, Much more likely to be unemployed than non-disabled people working in the screen industry. Right. Um, so all those really important factors of working conditions, um, really measurably, there is discrimination against disabled people. But one of the things that actually came up repeatedly in response to a number of different questions um, was that disabled people say that the biggest difficulty for them is actually the attitudes of the people around them. That Mm. says a lot. Um, So their colleagues at work and their bosses. Mm. Um, And it's really... um, really encapsulated in the idea of stigma and stereotypes, Um, that often people have an idea of what disabled is or what disabled means or what it looks like. And um, if you don't fit that, then you're... um, you're coming up against this stigma. Um, And that takes the form of things like nasty comments at Mm. work, um, jokes. Mm. A lot of people reported lots of people trying to be funny about disability. And um, the other really big thing was that often people said that they, that people expected them to do a worse job because Mm. they're disabled. Yeah. That that you're not really capable of doing a good job because mm. you're disabled is, mm. is the attitude they face every day um, and that they have to kind of fight that attitude to prove that they can even just do an adequate job mm. and that that is especially demoralising when it happens repeatedly every day. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of the flip side of that, I mean, the, obviously making jokes about disability, um, being unsupportive, those kind of are almost like, yeah, you can imagine that happening or, or the effect that would have. But there's that flip side of sort of the um, assuming like, oh, this is fine, this is good enough. You know, it's kind of maybe on some weird level well-intentioned, mm. but it's just it, it's completely, you know, we're three disabled people talking about disability on screen our requirements of what and our different abilities are so different. Yeah. And and when we say disabled, we're really including intellectual disability, physical disability and all the variations along that. And it's so complicated to think that you could lump 
disabled <laughs> altogether or to make assumptions about that well, as well. I think that assumption or perception of, of a, the sort of okay job too has traditionally been used as a barrier to employment, particularly mm. on the screen. So, you know, that well-intentioned thing of we did, I mean, Sia's music is a great example. Yes. You know, they said we tried, we didn't want to cast an autistic actress because we thought it would be overwhelming. That might be true of one, two, three autistic actresses yeah. that you see, but maybe the next one, that's her dream job. Um, mm. And I think it's that's often been the case with uh, employing people with lived experience of disability is this assumption that it'll be too much for them or, mm. you know, uh, so Without we just actually... won't go there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. To the too hard basket. And also it's that assumption that um, you know that their disability, that their experience. Very, my, my younger brother has autism and Down syndrome. His needs are so different from yours, Clems. Yeah, absolutely. No surprises. But, yeah, actually asking the people involved, what do you need to feel supported in the workplace? That's it. And I think I think while it's admirable that, you know, and it's, it's true of rather, like you were saying, a lot of different marginalised communities, there is this drive towards inclusion now. But that often stops at the specific, you know, needs of the person. Mm. So there might be a requirement to have somebody involved in a production in some role, um, whether that's writing, you know, a a production um, position, being an actor. Uh, But, you know, there might not necessarily be the full consideration of what makes that a safe workplace for that person. Do they need somewhere, you know, the example that I use, Paddy Considine is an actor on the autism spectrum. Um, finds the, you know, the lights that are just, you can't get away from it. You have to have lighting in TV. So they, he would have basically like a decompression tent where he could just go and chill when he wasn't on set. Like that's a great example of of somebody's support needs being recognised by the production, but it's definitely not the norm, which is a real which is a real mm. problem. Also love Paddy, oh, massive fan of Paddy. What a king. But, you know, like some, and I imagine that that would be more pronounced. Paddy is a cis white man. Totally. Uh, you know, like there's lots of other things yeah. that impact what treatment people get as And you well. don't want to be perceived to be a diva. That's the yeah. other thing. Often it's hard yeah. to disclose and ask for yeah. your support needs mm. to be met. And yeah, you, one of the things that I think um, Clem's example was perfect at demonstrating the difference between participating in a workplace and being included in a workplace. Yeah. And it's actually just really hard to do your job well if you're not included in a way that actually supports all your needs. Yeah. Um, and that's just a perfect example of that. Yeah. And for, for listeners that have just tuned in, this is Primal Screen and we're doing a disability special tonight. We're talking all about disabled bodies and film. Um, we are discussing a recent report that was done into the working conditions of disabled people in the Australian screen industry. Rada, the report also makes um, some recommendations for how we can create a more inclusive screen industry for disabled people. The report suggests more flexibility, making it more accessible, and also suggests some key changes to improve participation and inclusion for disabled workers. What are some of the specific changes that you recommend? Uh, So one of the things that connects to what we were just speaking about is that disabled people don't want to have to say in a meeting about other things, and by the way, I'm disabled Mm. and I need some extra accommodations. Mm. They don't want to have to be the one to drive the conversation towards disability Mm. because they have some access needs. They actually want employers to say, okay, let's talk with all of our employees about accessibility and, and that then the disabled people don't have to lead that conversation. You know, what I think of is the way in which we've become far more familiar with pronouns 
and the way in which often most email um, email signatures will specify mm. pronouns and that's normalised it in a lot of ways. Well, and the irony is too, and I think what's great about the report, including non-disabled people, is that these accommodations often make things better for everyone. Yeah, so precisely. no one likes to rock up to the production <laughs> company and not know what door to go through. But if, yeah. for example, from an autistic perspective, you have a visual schedule saying, here's the front door, this is the person you're going to talk to, you know, even like a cheat sheet where you've got everyone's faces and their names, it makes life a lot more pleasant for everybody, including people who didn't think they needed those accommodations. So yeah. I think that thing of normalising it across the board is, like Rada said, you know, you don't you don't want to have to say, oh, can we, you know, have a break from the Zoom because I've, I've got spiral eyes. Like to have the production come to you in the first place and say, hey, just let us know like what accommodations are mm. required for you to do your job well. Mm. Um, because I think unfortunately it's a bit like when they give a woman a major film franchise that doesn't do well and then they say, well, we'll never hire a woman again. <laughs> you know, if you're not given the right supports in the workplace, you probably won't do as good a job mm. as you could. And then mm. they might say, well, we tried a disabled person and wasn't so good, so we won't, we mm. won't hire them again. It's also assuming that you know who has a disability. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of disabilities are invisible. Um, there's lots of people also with chronic illness and pain um, that are often invisible. So there might be something going on for someone. And the other thing um, that's really important um, is to acknowledge that disabled people are experts in their own condition. Mm. Um, that the, when they say they need breaks, when they say they, they need something in a different format... Um, they're doing that to be helpful, to make things run more smoothly. Mm. Um, and it's not uncommon for those kinds of requests for even fairly straightforward accommodations to be um, met with a lot of difficulty. Mm. Um, and even suspicion, like yeah. why, why would you want that? What, are you really disabled? Is something that people actually hear disturbingly frequently. Yeah. Um, you know, who would pretend to be disabled um, apart from a character in a film written by someone who's not disabled because actually no one in the real world is pretending. No. <laughs> yes. And I love the fact that with this report, including non-disabled participants, because it really needs to be cultural shifts. And, and that's a bigger issue is that we're changing our mindset around it. And it's being seen, and, and Clem, I know you've written a lot about this, but Seeing as it necessarily is just a as a bad thing to have, and actually, like particularly in a creative space, in mm. a screenwriting context, in a filming context, this is adding to your production, and Absolutely. you're having a completely different take on something and a different way of doing it. Like some of the best artwork has been created because someone has a completely different understanding of an experience on life, and and we could really tap into that, and not just see like how can we accommodate these these limitations, but say this person is adding something to our film, mm. what can we, you know, how can we accentuate that and support them? Yeah, we found that about half of the disabled people we surveyed said that their experience of disability has a positive impact yeah. on their work in the screen industry. Mm. Um, and particularly the, the things they talked about was their creative thinking, mm. um, their problem solving, teamwork and empathy. Yeah. Um, and one of the, one of the um, ways that, somebody encapsulated really well I think was saying 
I'm a disabled person. I live in a world that is not made for me. Can you imagine how amazing my problem-solving skills are? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's just the perfect example, I think. So for listeners who are wanting to read the full findings of this report, and I highly recommend anyone who is working in the screen industry or has an interest in joining the screen industry um, to have have a good read through that. It is free to access. You just need to head to disability.unimelb.edu.au and um, head to the projects page for the community-based research program. And the report is titled Disability and Screen Work in Australia. Rada, thank you so much. Thank you, Flick. Clem, you have written extensively about disability and pop culture. Mm. Your wonderful memoir, Late Bloomer, How an Autism Diagnosis Changed My Life, um, speaks to that. And many of your uh, written work also taps into this. Um, I have a a lovely little quote about your book that uh, (laughs) – this is from Arts Hub, (laughs) four-star review. Um, The review talks about how you define autism in your own terms um, and you separate from the dry, ostracising language of scholarship and you challenge the stereotypes we consistently see in mainstream media portrayals. Much like your book, there are some really valuable representations of autism and disability more generally on screen. I really enjoyed your uh, review of Love on the Spectrum, which I know a lot of people will be familiar with, that appeared in Kill Your Darlings, an excellent journal. It is. Uh, Tell us a bit about what your take was on Love on the Spectrum. My take has essentially remained the same. I think the show has made some improvements. So there have been two seasons on ABC and then there was a season made uh, for Netflix with an American cast. And my position remains the same, which is I love the people. So I think it's fantastic to see autistic people on screen. Um, I don't have a problem with that. The the issue that I have with Love on the Spectrum, and it's something that a lot of autistic people agree, and non-autistic people, but particularly autistic people, is the framing is can tend towards the a bit infantilizing, you know, mm. and it's and it's 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 a often it's production choices like music cues. Um, it's the way it's edited. It's the sort of framing of how people's families perceive them. I don't doubt, with it, you know, in most of these cases, these people come from incredibly supportive families, but it'll be framed in a way that sort of makes them seem a bit wacky and embarrassing. Mm. Um, it, it's happening again on on Better Date Than Never, which is a shame. Um, and I think that it's it's so hard because it's a show. It's reality TV, you know. Mm. It's cast. It's edited with as much of a sort of storyline as The Bachelorette, but people think it's a documentary. Mm. Um, and I think that it it has this – it's a bit like what Rado was talking about, that sort of good enough, you know. I saw one review that um, by a non-autistic critic that, that said something like, you know, love's never seemed so pure. It's like <laughs> autistic people fuck. Like there are – there's – they're not all – we're not all babies. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it's – gotten better at showing some of the diversity of experience um on the autism spectrum but to a certain extent you know they still haven't had a non-speaking autistic person on the show um there's this sort of idea of what you should do on a date which is not only very neurotypical it's really old-fashioned like I don't know many people who are kind of going through the motions of here's how you converse on a date and and from an autistic perspective that's it's almost hostile um so and it's it's tricky because I know a lot of people love that show and they think of it as comfort viewing but that's not that all that autistic people Mm. can be so I think that something like Heartbreak High uh which stars Chloe Hayden who is autistic or she's neurodivergent um and has 
you know, autism consultants, autistic people in the writer's room has a much more nuanced depiction of what it is for that character. So that's Quinny's experience, but but you can see in the reaction to the show um, that a lot more autistic people feel very seen by that Mm. character and, and the experience that she has during that narrative. So I think... Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky one because it is it's a plus to have autistic people on TV, but at what cost? You know, and I think Absolutely, that's that's yeah. the question of representation. You know, something I was thinking about when I reread your article last night um, was Spike Lee's term, the magical Negro, mm. and I I think about that because I feel as though disabled characters, and when you mentioned that thing of love has never been so pure, this idea that disabled people don't you know, aren't assholes or oh, problematic. Aren't, yeah. aren't problematic. You see it a lot. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it happens when often, I mean, oh, I hesitate to bring him up, but Kanye West, you know, talking about his various challenges and then people saying he, he can't say that, you know, every autistic person is perfect. No, they're not. And actually right. in a way that sort of prison of the, the idealised representation is a nightmare. So I think mm. the more autistic characters we see who are like the school bully or, you know, some jerk at, at work, like would be fantastic to not have to be in that sort of Rain Man, yeah, magical yeah. disabled person role. Yeah, and, and it's not simply that they're being presented only as a positive and only as this like childlike way, mm. but they're also in service of the non-disabled person, which That's is kind it. of another part of that magical Negro myth and representation on screen that we see all the time, but we, we also need to apply that to disability. Well, I always talk about the difference between Rain Man and the boy who could fly they came out within about a year of each other um you know rain man became the the overwhelming kind of cultural touchstone for autism but the boy who could fly um the autistic character in that film yeah there is a bit of you know helping the 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 protagonist understand herself but he's not fixed it's it's presented as a bad thing that he's that the state is trying to institutionalize him he doesn't have magical powers because he's autistic he has them also you know Mm. and he's still autistic at the end of the film and i think uh, you know, what a different world we would be in if that film had become a huge runaway hit and not Rain Man. But, but yeah, I think we're still, we're still in the shadow of those sorts of depictions and we're slowly getting out from underneath mm. it, but it is still a problem. For some people, if they do not have direct experience with disability, um, films and TV shows act as, as, their, as an educational tool. Yeah. And if you have people who are pretending to be disabled on screen or you have writers who have no experience at all of disability or have not done research, um, you end up with these really skewed representations that then have very real-life um, ramifications. And Rada, we talked a bit about the report before and your inclusion of these disabled and non-disabled. And one of the big things that came out of your findings was that it's about that mindset and that needing to have this cultural shift around disability, assuming it always is a negative thing, um, assuming of what that person would mean without asking them. But these films and TV shows, they inform people of that. Um, so it has a huge impact. Absolutely. Um, I definitely see screen culture as contributing to the stereotypes that people encounter on a daily basis in mm. the workplace. Mm. Um, the idea that disability only looks like somebody using a wheelchair or with a guide dog, Mm. Um, that disability is something you can see from the outside. Mm. Um, That it's always a tragedy. Yeah, Mm. a tragedy or an inspiration and Mm. there's nothing in between. Mm. Um, But one of the things that I heard a lot from people in the survey and the interviews was just that we need more disabled people and more disabled characters on screen that nearly a fifth of Australians are disabled, Mm -hmm. but the characters we see on screen is is a tiny proportion. Mm. Um, And if there were just more 
representations of disabled people, then yes, some of them could be crap, mm. but <laughs> some of them, some of them might not be, yeah. you know, and and that it would just be helpful to have multiple representations Absolutely. of what it's like to be deaf, yes. multiple representations of what it's like to live with chronic back pain, which mm. is a really common experience mm. of disability. If we have multiple representations, then we're not just reinforcing those stereotypes. Absolutely. And I remember, um, not that I've necessarily seen my experience presented on screen, but there's something so thrilling about getting even close to that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, and it, you know, there's problematic examples, but some of it, you know, even the problematic ones, I'm like, well, it's, it's close enough for me. And, you know, it's just something because you're just clutching at whatever there is. Um, I remember watching Rust and Bone and some of the operation scenes, I was like, oh, that, and, and the pain that she goes through, I was like, oh, that's really relatable. That's kind of, and the rehabilitation process. I was like, great. I'm mm. seeing my experience on screen and, it's problematic because she's an able-bodied actress. Um, there's lots of other things to, to unpack. But even when you just get a slither because you've been starved of yeah. any representation, you're kind of just wanting anything, aren't you? Absolutely. And it's it's, it's the old stopped clock thing. I mean, mm. even a film like Music by Sia, there's truth to that performance. Yeah. Um, and that is, that's the thing. When there's only a little bit of representation for you, you'll grab what you can. Like, yeah. I mean, I love the Temple Grand and HBO movie, which stars Claire Danes, but I think that's a great example of a film that did the due process. You know, they, they had enough lead time to properly engage with. So, I mean, I don't think, I think for the most part, yes, you should hire um, an actor with that lived experience of disability. If you're not going to, for whatever reason, then you have to do that much work. Yeah. Uh, and the problem is that, you know, there's often not the money, that they don't want to spend the time. As Rada's report um, demonstrates, they don't want to hire the disabled people mm. to help make sure that the, the, the production, you know, does the right thing. So I think that that's... Um, that's quite uncommon um, and it's something that people that they should be putting aside money for in the budget. And the other thing that people raised a lot was experiencing tokenism, mm. feeling like they're the token disabled yeah. person that has to speak for all disabled experience, mm. that has to speak for all experiences of disability ever. Which is just ridiculous. <laughs> and, and so that even if, for example, you do hire a disabled actor to perform that role of a disabled character, are you making them also do the work of the writer Mm -hmm. and the director? Mm. If you don't have a lot of disabled people in your community, you're not representative of the wider community, Mm. but you're also forcing more work on people. You're forcing that actor to write that character because they haven't been written in an informed way. And you're not giving them a writer's credit. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. You're not giving them the kind of credit they deserve and the kind of pay they deserve. And, you know, we mentioned it before, but the emotional labour of of having to use your personal lived experience to to filter that into the work and and to use it as an educational tool. You don't always want to be educating people on this. Um, I think we like we should give some listeners some recommendations yeah. on on TV shows and films that do have really good representations. I mentioned before that there's some that I uh, like that are problematic and uh, you know <laughs> might sound crazy, but not all disabled people agree on things. Um, even the fact of saying what? <laughs> disabled people or people with disability that's still kind of sometimes challenged. Uh, I thought of Sound of Metal, which um, I have to you know it doesn't have um, a person with any hearing uh, difficulties as in the lead, it is Riz Ahmed. I did enjoy it still. I thought it was a really fascinating depiction of disability, but also didn't kind of, he goes through this grief, 
which I, I think is 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 relatable. But he also it's not seen as this huge negative. And I, I just really loved how that was presented on screen. I just love that film in general. Um, Rada, Clem, do you have some some recommendations of? I actually saw an amazing film yesterday at the Women in Film, Melbourne Women in Film yes, Festival. Yes, yes. Um, there was a film called Imagine Touch. It's a half-hour documentary um, and it focuses on two women who are deafblind, so that means they are both deaf and blind, um, and it focuses particularly on their experiences of communication. And I love that it gives insight into their experience of the world, um, but it also does that in a really creative way. Um, and so it's not just a, this is an educational documentary. It's really creative. It's really emotional. It's really compelling. Um, and as the title Imagine Touch suggests, it really focuses a lot on touch mm. and touch as the primary means of communication. Um and that was just so interesting and showed me about an experience of disability that I don't have much experience with myself, um, but really opened my eyes to that experience and was just the most compelling thing I've seen in ages. I thought that the film, when I watched it, I was afterwards I was reeling, trying to make sense of so many new ideas. Um, and I thought it had gone for like 60 to 90 <laughs> minutes and it was half an hour, but there was just so much in it. Yeah. Um, I did hear about this film. It's yeah. gotten great reception at least on yeah. social media. Probably yeah. some of your listeners would know that um, that it's uh, based on a theatrical performance um, that that was created by and centred um, these two deaf-blind women. Um, the, the documentary was, um, was made by... Um, a woman who's a coder and a um, and a woman who's deaf. Um, so they don't have the deafblind experience specifically, um, but they do have some adjacent experience um, that is very relevant. And they really centred those deafblind women in that mm. film in a way that was just really compelling and enlightening. Mm. Um, and it was also to me, a, um, a fantastic demonstration of why film festivals are so good. Yes. And why it's great to have film festivals back. Yes. <laughs> because there was a panel discussion afterwards and that was amazing too. Um, and I learned so much just from that panel discussion. Um, and I feel I, I would definitely watch that documentary again when it's available um, for me to watch at home. Um, but... Uh, but the context of the film festival and being able to discuss these things is a, is just so valuable. Yes. I am also thrilled that festivals are back. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not quite the same seeing them online and um, it is the one – I think that post-film discussion, especially when it's talking about disability, you kind of do want to unpack and it. That, and, and that really came up in the panel that um, – that yes, having lots of online panels, online forums, um, especially have, as we've had since COVID, um, but that can be really, really useful for a lot of disabled people. But specifically these deafblind women who are at the centre of that documentary, Imagine Touch, they really said they hate nothing more than Zoom because it's completely inaccessible to them. Mm. They really need that in-person presence to experience something. I also went to a um, 
compilation of shorts at the Women in Film Melbourne Women in Film Festival yesterday, and it was great to see that there were central characters in three of the shorts in a two-hour compilation compilation who were disabled Mm. Um, and that was just great to see. I have done a special on short films before. I love short films. One of the things I love most about it and there's a trend now to do smartphone films, they're so accessible Mm. for people who – and financially accessible – but also in terms of mobility and, and things like that, it's really interesting. I think that space will hopefully we'll see more. Uh, <laughs> Amelia Greens. Oh, I love it. Um, we'll hopefully see more in that space as, as, as this becomes kind of commonplace. And there's festivals to showcase this work. Um, I've just got two recommendations. Yeah, one, one, well, it's three, but... but um, one is the documentary The Reason I Jump, which is based on the No Fukushima book, um, which was at MIF last year, but I've just seen is on SBS On Demand at the moment. And that's a really incredible uh, insight into the experiences of five young people, young autistic people, particularly non-speaking autistic people. And just on that, um, if you have access to uh, Disney Plus or other means, um, one of the Pixar Spark shorts from 2020 is a short film called Loop. And um, that is about a... Young boy uh, being paired up with a non-speaking autistic girl on a day camp and they hired a non-speaking autistic girl to do, uh, Madison Bandy, to do the voice acting for that character and there's a bunch of little behind-the-scenes shorts which are a great example of, yeah, making that workplace work for her. So going Mm -hmm. to her house, you know, recording what they needed to record if she needs a break to just lie on the floor and hang out um, and it really is reflected in the end product, which is a gorgeous little film. So if you've got kids or even if you don't, um, <laughs> that's, I think, a really beautiful example of great representation and great behind-the-scenes approaches as well. Yeah. I love that we're finishing on a bit of a high because I think that there is some really valuable work being done and it's always great to give it a shout-out and 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 support it. So uh, Rada and Clem, thank you so much for joining me on this special. I've been wanting to do this for a long time and it's lovely that it's finally happening. So um, really interesting discussion about disability on screen and so much to unpack. I do recommend for listeners to check out the report. It is, uh, like I said, available online at disability.unimelb.edu.au. Just head to the Community-Based Research Program tab for Disability and Screen Work in Australia. Um, Thank you both for your time tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 